Dear Heavenly Father, we're uh, continually thankful for the Word of God, the opportunity we have to gather here as the National Count, uh, Capital Bible Church and uh, not only study the Word of God, but be uh, energized and reassured, uh, edified from the Word of God. We're thankful for uh, the body of Christ that gathers here. We pray that, Father, we would um, be truly mutually supporting as believers within this body. We know that we each have responsibilities as unto you, and we pray that we would be diligent in accomplishing them, that we would be uh, willing to do this and eager to accomplish them. We pray for those who right now are at Camp Arete from our congregation. We uh, we know that the, the camp can be in a, a very exciting and enjoyable time for the young people that are there and for the adults who are administering it. We pray that they would have the opportunity to uh, to teach, encourage, and assist in the spiritual growth of those young people who are there. We pray that you would keep the adults safe, the, the activities safe as well, uh, and that uh, all things that would are planned there would um, be, that would progress as planned, and that it would be very effective. And we pray then, Father, for the, the safe return home at the end of this week. Continue to pray, Father, for um, Play Roma Bible Church in Tullahoma. We know that they are meeting uh, right now at the same time we are. Uh, we know that they're back in their the spaces where they began. Uh, we know that uh, while they are disappointed, Father, they're not discouraged. Uh, we pray that uh, they would soon have the results uh, from the fire inspector and also from the insurance company and that they may once again uh, with uh, the faithfulness that you have imbued them uh, begin the reconstruction I pray that that would go well that uh, the, uh, the companies that would be doing that uh, would uh, be able to progress quickly so that uh, Play Roma Bible Church may once more return to the facility that you have for them Father and tonight as we uh, continue in Zechariah Zechariah being one of the twelve prophets that uh, very often uh, gets uh, less attention than some of the more prominent ones. And we pray that, Father, we would uh, see the value of this book and understand uh, why God the Holy Spirit decided to preserve this information for us. Uh, we know that it's very valuable. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Zechariah, Zechariah uh, being written by one of the prophets who is uh, ministering to Israel in the post-exilic period. We have uh, the periods that are pre-exilic, and uh, we know that pre-exilic is generally considered that period of time just prior to both the northern kingdom that went into exile in 522 BC, uh, 722 BC, and then also the southern kingdom that went into exile into Babylon when conquered by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. Uh, we have the exilic period, which is a period in which Daniel and Ezekiel uh, are uh, prophesying uh, during the 70 years uh, we know that Jeremiah wrote about those 70 years, uh, but we believe that Jeremiah's uh, ministry in his book is uh, pre-exilic. And then we have several books that are uh, post-exilic. And the, the post-exilic uh, prophets uh, are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And those three are considered our post-exilic prophets. We also have three post-exilic histories, at least three, and that is Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the three, or the six, uh, really go together fairly well. Um, we are in Zechariah, 
and tonight we'll be alluding a little bit to Haggai because the the two uh, prophesied at the same time, although Zechariah goes a little bit uh, uh, more lengthy, uh, covered a, a greater period of time. We are uh, seeing the burdens of Zechariah. They cover chapters 9 through 14. The first one, of course, is found in chapter, uh, begins in chapter uh, 9. Chapter 9, beginning with the phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. And then we will see that same language when we begin verse 12, the burden of the word of the Lord. And last week, I, I reviewed for us uh, sort of an outline of these chapters. And I think this is important for us because it helps us to get a perspective of these chapters that are that are critically important because they're, uh, for the most part, uh, eschatological. They, are, they have to do with the end times. Uh, the first part of the first burden, of course, we believe thinks uh, we believe could very easily be historical. Uh, the first burden, the future of Israel, chapters nine through ten, uh, we have the burden of the na- uh, the judgment of the nations, uh, chapter nine one through eight, the coming of the King, the Messiah, and in chapter nine as well, verses nine and ten, and it's right there between nine and ten that we seem to have this. Uh, this split because uh, verse 9 is uh, took place during the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth but verse 10 is yet future and then blessings of the king the Messiah uh, 9 chapter 9 beginning in verse 11 going through chapter 10 verse 12 uh, we then have the blessings delayed. We're going to see a time of judgment that's going to be described in chapter 11. Uh, some theologians, uh, commentaries describe this as a hinge between the two burdens. It can be seen either way, but uh, that's chapter 11. And then our, the, the third major point here is the second burden, which is the restoration of Israel, chapters 12 through 14. And we will see these three different uh, parts of the second burden, uh, deliverance of Jerusalem, chapter 12, 1 through 13, 6, description of the shepherd savior, chapter 13, 7, uh, 8, and 9, and then the day of the Lord, the restoration of Israel in chapter 14, 1 through 21. And let me just say that um, there is much to be learned from these chapters regarding uh, the eschatological future. We, we don't find a lot of, uh, of, of teachers, theologians, maybe pastors, teaching in Zechariah, but it is uh, uh, measured and uh, often stated by many uh, who, who work in Revelation and Daniel as Zechariah is probably the book in the Old Testament that gives us the most about Israel's history uh, during the end times, particularly the tribulation. And we're going to see some of that tonight uh, uh, as we get into verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. Now, last week we saw these promises. I said that the beginning in 9 verse 11 we have five promises that were given to Israel uh, and the five promises are stated as such the Lord promised to preserve Israel in chapter 9 verses 11 through 13 the Lord promised to protect Israel in end time battle chapter 9 verses 14 through 17 uh, also, the Lord promised to provide for Israel in the millennial kingdom. I'm going to review that tonight quickly and then move on into to, uh, 10.2. But the Lord promises to provide for Israel in the millennial kingdom. Uh, the fourth promise is that the Lord promises to purify Israel for, for the millennial kingdom. And we're going to see that in chapters 10, uh, chapter 10, 2 through 5. And in 2 through 5, we're going to see the battle of uh, Armageddon, the Armageddon campaign. 
That occurs during the tribulation. And then uh, the fifth promise, the Lord promised to regather Israel for the millennial kingdom. And those are verses 6 through 12. Uh, we probably won't get to 6 through 12 tonight because I'd like to spend a little time with the Armageddon campaign, which is um, can abs- uh, absorb a lot of time, but I will try to just review it quickly. Okay. Uh, first of all, in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 10, verse 1, let me read this uh, verse for us. Verse 10. Ask the Lord for rain. In the time of the latter rain, the Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. All right. Now, this is the first, this is the third promise, providing is, providing for Israel in the millennial kingdom. You'll notice here, and I think that this is important for us as we begin to look at verse one, that Zechariah is talking to the Jews that have come back from Babylon from the exile. And they are under what we would call um, hardship because the, um, the nation has not recovered. There are those who have regathered to rebuild the temple. They have not completed the temple. They were able to uh, build the uh, the altar, they put the foundation down for the temple, and then they stopped. And now uh, Haggai and Zechariah are trying to encourage them to get back to work so that the nation can uh, be blessed again. Uh, they, they're to be faithful and to obedient, and they were sent back there to build the temple, and they have not done that. And we see that in Zechariah, and, or excuse me, in Haggai. But What's happening in the land is that they still are under uh, the divine discipline. And part of that divine discipline is famine, which comes from a drought. And so they're standing here listening to Zechariah speak to them. And what is he telling them? He's saying, ask for rain. Well, um, Israel needs to return to obedience before the Lord is going to bless them. And they can read that for themselves in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28. Uh, but this is uh, Israel asking for uh, the rain during the Millennial Kingdom, the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom and through the Millennial Kingdom. And uh, they will receive uh, plenty of rain, and there's going to be an answer here, and we see this. Now, I've given you several points. I don't know that I actually uh, gave them to you uh, on uh, the PowerPoint slides, but let me review those for you. First of all, if Israel was in right, right relationship with God, all they needed to do was ask God for rain. And that is something that Israel is going to be doing. Uh, once they arrive <clears throat> in the uh, the time of the Millennial Kingdom, Um, secondly the latter rain as I described last time was the last rainfall which came in the spring just prior to the harvest they would have rain in the fall and then rain in the springtime and for them this latter rain was a very critical rain because that is what really gave the boost the substance for for the uh, the grain on the uh, on the stalks. Um, thirdly, the flashing clouds or storm clouds were the were the rain heavy clouds that brought prosperity. Um, when Israel had turned from the Lord, the nation experienced times of spiritual barrenness, and during those times of spiritual barrenness, they would have. Uh, agricultural barrenness as well. And so this uh, prophecy for them was something that was to be an encouragement. Now, they thought that this could occur easily within the next few years. But, of course, we know that Israel uh, did not return to obedience. For the showers of rain and grass was uh, the showers 
was an indication of blessing from the Lord. And then five, this sets the theme to proceed to verse two. What is the source of the rain? And in verse two, we see, for the idols speak delusion. Are the the idols the source of the, the rain? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. That's not going to be the source. The source of the rain is going to come from the Lord. So, uh, Zechariah 10, 2 through 5, the Lord promised to purify Israel. And we're going to see here that uh, for the idols, the word for idols here is the word teraphim. And we, we noticed this last time. I think this is uh, close to where we uh, uh, finished. But the teraphim are the small idols kept in the homes used for divination and for occult. They... Bel- They would create these idols or they would purchase these idols or they may be handed down from uh, the family and they actually believe that somehow these idols provided for them uh, whether it was uh, weather or health or or generic blessings or they thought they could uh, somehow appease the gods or even contact demons and gods. Secondly, idols delude which leads to iniquity. And then, of course, discipline, sorrow, and misery. And verse 2 says, For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wend their way like sheep, or they wander like sheep. They are in trouble because there's no shepherd. So here we have these idols. The idols uh, delude them. They put their trust in the idols. They think the idols are going to be able to provide for them. And it's a delusion, a complete delusion. Uh, thirdly, the diviners are liars because their source is demonic. The diviners are liars because their source is demonic. They see nothing unless it comes from demonic sources. So their sources are going to be demonic. Uh, They see nothing unless it comes from demonic sources. And then, of course, the information. Sometimes the information can be true, but if it was true, it was going to be used to delude them. So even then, the information is as as good as false. It's deception, or it's designed to mislead, and we would say it's a lie. Fourth, we would say the diviners present false dreams. The diviners present false false dreams which hold no hope or no comfort. And that's what this text is trying to tell us here in verse 2. The diviners present false dreams which seem to hold comfort, but in reality they are only false hope and no comfort at all. Point 5, the people which have received false information would have no truth or factual information. And therefore, they would wander like sheep without a shepherd. Wandering like sheep without a shepherd. People without discernment are vulnerable to deception and lies. And people are very often found without deception. There are always people who are willing to uh, deceive and those who without uh, discernment are very vulnerable to deception and to lies. People who listen to lies and then believe them are also living lies themselves. Six, people who seek comfort from false sources will have no comfort. Uh, Comfort comes from the Word of God. Uh, Comfort comes from the Lord. And that's where we're going to find comfort. That's where we're going to find hope. Uh, People who seek comfort from false sources or simply not will will simply not have comfort. They're going to continue to be deceived, they're going to be continued to be dissatisfied, they're going to continue to be frustrated and in the end 
they're going to be miserable. Point seven here, the people are like sheep with no one leading them or protecting them. They become scattered and wayward. And by the way, I believe that verse 2, just as verse 1, is, uh, is, uh, is talking to us about Israel in the future. And this is probably, if I had to try to uh, identify a specific time, this is probably the early part of the tribulation as they're placing their trust and their hope in the Antichrist and in the security that they are receiving from the Antichrist. Uh, they are going to be deluded into thinking that everything is secure. But it's not going to be secure because the Antichrist is going to turn on them just like that in an instant. Israel is going to be like sheep with no one leading them or protecting them. They become scattered and wayward. They're going to run into trouble. Point eight here, deluded people are afflicted. And that's a better translation here for the word trouble. They're in trouble, but a better word is that they are afflicted because there's no shepherd. Uh, Deluded people are afflicted. They're in trouble. They're disturbed. They're even vulnerable to being ravished. Uh, nine. Uh, here, a shepherd in the Old Testament usually referred to usually referred to national leaders, and this is seen in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, uh, that is supposed to be Jeremiah third. No, it, uh, let's see. Yeah, Jeremiah three fifteen, and then also in twenty three one through two. Um, Jeremiah uses the term shepherd very often for the national leadership and I think that's what we have here when he speaks when it says uh, they are in trouble because there's no shepherd there's no national leadership here and then finally point 10 during the tribulation Israel will have false leaders and they will suffer because of it okay Uh, that may well have been uh, a fairly uh, solid review from last week but it gets us rolling now uh, from verse chapter, uh, beginning in chapter 10. Verse 1 is the provision for Israel in the millennial kingdom. And then verse 4 is the purification of Israel. Israel is going to be purified from these uh, diviners, from these people that give them no hope. Now, as we move into verse 3, we're going to see that the Lord's anger, his justice is what we would say, is kindled against the shepherds, the shepherds who have given them no leadership and given them false hope. My anger is kindled against the shepherds, and I will punish the goat herder, the goat herds, um, for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock the house of Judah and will make them as his royal horse in battle. Now listen how this goes in verse 4. From him comes the cornerstone. From him the tent peg. From him the battle bow. From him every ruler together. Now we're going to need to do a little bit of work Um, grammatically there but if you simply look at the antecedent for him we move back into verse 3 the last sentence we have here well we can the last two sentences it says for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock the house of Judah and will make them as his royal horse or you could say his majestic horse in battle And then verse 4 says, the first line, from him comes the cornerstone. And so what is him? Who is him? Is the better question. And I think the antecedent here is going to be the house of Judah. This is Israel. So from Israel comes the cornerstone, or from Judah. From Judah comes the cornerstone. Him, it is a third person singular, uh, person singular, but... It's referring to the nation of 
of Israel. It's referring to Judah. And that fits the sentence because from Judah is going to come this cornerstone. From Judah is going to come the peg. We'll see what this is, the tent peg. From Judah, the battle bow is coming, the battle bow. And then from him, every ruler. And the word there for ruler is probably better translated uh, oppressor, which is how it was translated uh, in Zechariah 9.8. Verse 5. Let me continue to read here because I want to cover verse 5 tonight as well. They shall be like mighty men. They, again. Uh, Who is they? This is Israel. Now notice, what are we describing here? We're describing a battle in which Israel is uh, participating and going to be the uh, a dominant, uh, aggressive, successful force. They shall be like mighty men who tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them and the riders on horses shall be put to shame. This is a very interesting passage and it's one of the few passages we're going to see another one uh, in uh, Zechariah 12 but this is one of the passages that is linked or we would say it's a cross reference to Revelation and the battle of Armageddon and here this describes Israel as a force that is fighting so This is rather interesting. Uh, This is verse 3. I I need to go back and pick up verse 3 and kind of see if I can't pull this together. Uh, So Zechariah chapter 10, verses 2 through 5, we have the the Lord promised to purify Israel. I think I have that with verse 2, but I think that probably needs to come down to verse 3. All right, let's see here. First of all, God's anger is going to be directed against the false shepherds. And that's the first line. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. Now, just very quickly, remember, when we talk about God's anger, God doesn't get mad. God doesn't get angry. God simply, uh, His justice simply responds to His righteousness. If His righteousness, if we fall short of His righteousness, then His justice provides what His righteousness requires or demands. And therefore, anger here is a description of God's actions. It's We would say it's language of accommodation. Uh, it helps us to understand God's justice in action. My anger is kindled against the shepherds. The shepherds are the false leaders, the disobedient leaders, the inept, uh, self-absorbed leaders in Israel. I will punish the goat herds. Now, there's some question here as to what we have with goat herds. Let's see if I put them up here. Goats generally refer to Gentiles. And therefore, uh, goats very often referred to as Gentile leaders. Here, the goat herds are probably the Gentile nations that have aligned themselves with the Antichrist. Uh, therefore, what we see here is, again, we, we've gotten into the uh, the middle of the tribulation. We're in the last three and a half years, and the Lord now is responding to what the Antichrist is doing. Third, in the middle of verse 3, the thought changes, changes because God now is going to visit with blessings. And when we see the word... Uh, the, in the third line here for the Lord of hosts again emphasis on the Lord this is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the who commands all the armies of the heavens all of the angelic hosts and it says for the Lord of hosts will visit his flock and when we see the word visit, the Hebrew word paga, uh, uh, it means to attend, or I would say to take action. Uh, this is the same word that uh, the Lord 
spoke to Moses when he sent him back to Egypt. He said, I've heard the plight of my people and I'm going to visit them. In other words, he was going to take action. And that's what we see here in verse uh, verse 3. The Lord is going to take action regarding Israel, the house of Judah. Um, and this is the Lord's judgment coming to rescue Israel during the Armageddon campaign. And we will review that here in just a minute. Point 5 God will use his people during the battle, and I should say it here, during the battles of the tribulation. So God will use his people during the battles of the tribulation. Uh, the Lord is going to pour out his blessing when he visits them, and he's going to rescue them. Uh, his judgment is going to be felt by those at Armageddon, uh, Armageddon is just another is the Greek form of Megiddo, Har Megiddo, which is in the northern portion of Israel. We'll we'll see this in a moment. Um, and you'll notice here in verse four where it says, "And he will make them as his royal horse in battle." I think uh, other English versions translate this as his majestic horse and that may be a better uh, translation than the New King James Version the royal horse royal horse is fine uh, but I don't know that he's necessarily trying to refer to the royal family or to a royal horse but it's a mighty horse a majestic horse a horse that is going to be uh, truly um, special it's an inadequate word here but majestic in the battle uh, God will use his people during the uh, the battles of the tribulation uh, six Judah here I believe is used for the nation of Israel we're not simply uh, observing the southern kingdom but the entire land of Israel which will be we believe uh, essentially the nation that we have there today uh, point seven, uh, majestic horse indicates the enabling power of God on Israel. Uh, and very often when we think of uh, the battle of Armageddon, we think about the Lord fighting for Israel and Israel uh, essentially being uh, almost defenseless. But it appears from this passage, Zechariah 10 verse 3, that the Lord is going to enable them going to empower them um, and therefore God is going to impart this ability to the house of Judah at that time uh, and eight the Messiah will rule Israel righteously as opposed to these false leaders okay that's um, verse three there's a lot to be found in verse three uh, uh, previously the Lord had allowed that the tyrannical oppression of foreign leaders to control Israel. But what Zechariah is telling us in the future, his prophecy informs us that the Messiah is going to come and is going to righteously rule Israel. Uh, he points this out in several ways as seen in the following verse. All right, verse 4 now. Now we've led into this and we're going to see a little bit of the grammar as we start verse 4. It says, from him comes the cornerstone. All right. Uh, in Zechariah, again, two through five, the Lord promises to purify Israel. And we're seeing this in verse uh, four. First of all, our first point is that the third person singular in verse four, him, refers to Israel. We would say it's a collective pronoun. It's referring to uh, Judah, to the nation as a whole. Uh, therefore, uh, I think it's the New American Standard Bible uses the word them, and them is probably better, but it's not the literal translation. We just have to understand that them uh, in the New American Standard Bible is more of a, an interpretation, but I think it's the proper interpretation. 
Secondly, the cornerstone, the peg and the battle bow would all come from Israel. And I think that this is a little bit different perspective than what we very often see when we're describing the battle of Armageddon. Uh, We have not in the past possibly placed as much emphasis on the the involvement that Israel is going to be uh, is going to play or have in the Armageddon campaign. Thirdly, the ancient Jewish rabbinic targum ID'd this person as the Messiah. Now, today, there, uh, there's a lot more speculation, but uh, this was for uh, years, uh, centuries. Uh, as a matter of fact, millennium, we have seen this as the Messiah, and we continue to believe that that's the case, that this is the Messiah. The person that's coming, uh, that's going to be the cornerstone, the peg and the battle bow. For, as the cornerstone, he would bring a stable foundation for Israel. That's what this cornerstone is. As the cornerstone, he would be the foundation upon which Israel would find stability. And throughout the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is seen as this cornerstone. Um, Let's take just a minute or two here to look at Psalm 118.22 Psalm 118 It's not hard to find because just find Psalm 119 and, and then take a while to get through Psalm 119 but in Psalm 118.21 we see that there is a prophecy here that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, this is probably more of a prophecy about Israel, but we see that the the cornerstone of that Israel is, as far as human history is concerned, uh, we, we first see the association with the nation here, but within the nation, we're going to see that this cornerstone is going to be the Messiah. Let's turn to Isaiah, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. In verse 16 of Isaiah 28 says, Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried or a an approved stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Uh, believe that this stone that's being laid there is in fact the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the same thing. The Lord picks this up in Luke 20. So uh, save your put your finger here in Zechariah 10 and let's go to Luke Luke 2017 in Luke Twenty seventeen. The Lord says, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? 
the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind them to powder. You know, the Lord here is describing the the future and the future uh, of Israel, but we're also going to see that Paul is going to take this and make it the future of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only the cornerstone and the foundation for Israel, but he becomes the cornerstone and the foundation for the church in Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20. Ephesians 2.20 says... Verse 19, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Um, Therefore, this cornerstone that we see uh, coming up in the text with Zechariah is, again, I think a reference to the Messiah. Now, secondly, as a peg, he's going to be a secure location for Israel to be established. Um, we have to look at this word, uh, the word for, it's translated most places, as the tent peg, and it's Yahweh. Uh, Yah Vev, two t- uh, uh, radicals in Hebrew that sound like a T. So it's Yah Vev, Yah Yef. And uh, it, it can mean a tent stake or a tent peg, but it also has the sense of being a peg upon which something is hung. It becomes a stable place or a secure place to hang something. And we see this, the use of it, in a good and an excellent place to go, is in Ezra. Uh, in Ezra 9.8. Let's turn back to Ezra. It's just in front of Job. Just in front of Nehemiah. Ezra 9.8 Interestingly here, we have Ezra speaking and he's describing the remnant. The remnant that is back in the land and God is going to create a stable place because of them. Uh, Ezra 9 verse 8 says, And now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape. This is the remnant that had uh, had returned from Babylon. They are, uh, this is post-exilic of course, a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. Verse 9 says, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Here the word peg is the same word. And I think that instead of this being uh, a tent peg, it could be a tent peg. A tent peg is designed to secure um, the corner, uh, a part of a tent. But here I think that this peg is a secure location for them to be established, to be hung, to be uh uh, to be placed. I think that's a better understanding of this word. Um, a peg here 
refers to a secure place on a wall where items, weapons, utensils, uh, clothing were hung. And the Messiah here is going to be a secure hook for Israel to be fixed or established. Okay. Six, point six here, as battle bow, he would bring the strength of military victory. The Lord is going to bring the strength of military victory. And we see this. Let's go back to Zechariah. Zechariah describing here as a battle bow. Look over in verse or chapter 9, verse 13. I think that we have this sense when... Uh, chapter 9, verse 13, it says, For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim. Uh, therefore, we have sort of this, the context here. Um, so, from him, from Judah, the battle bow. This comes from Judah. Alright, verse 7 the every ruler here refers to oppressors that will invade Israel. Uh, the word for uh, ruler here, the last line of verse 4, is, um, is the word nagas. And it is translated oppressor in 9.8. Look over it. Back to chapter 9, verse 8. Verse 8 says, I will camp around my house because of my army. In other words, protecting like an army. Because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. And that's our word. Therefore, this, even though... uh, my New King James Version translates this ruler, they have a particular interpretation in mind. Instead of just giving us, I think, a a beneficial translation, they gave us an interpretation, and I think they miss it here. Uh, That is the idea of an oppressor. From him, every, every oppressor together, and what's being taught here is that there are going to be oppressors that are going to invade Israel but the Messiah is going to drive every oppressor from Judah that's what's going to happen because this is uh, again during the Armageddon campaign Uh, so as we read that the last uh, line in 3 ties with 4 and it says um well, verse, back up one more there. For the Lord of hosts will visit his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them, Judah, as his majestic horse in battle. From him comes the cornerstone. From him comes the tent peg. Uh, from him comes the battle bow. And from him comes every ruler together. They're going to come together, and the Lord is going to destroy them. Uh, he's going to drive them from there. All right, now, let me progress on here into verse 5, because I want to tie this together. In verse 5, it says, They, and again, I believe this is Judah, shall be like like mighty men. Uh, This is our Hebrew word, gabor, and it means uh, valiant. Uh, We could even say mighty warriors who tread down their enemy in the mire of the streets in the battle. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and riders on horses shall be put to shame. I'm going to show you in a minute where I think this falls in the Armageddon campaign. But let me give you a quick review here of of, uh, of verse 5. First of all, the Lord will transform the nation of Israel into mighty men. You may remember during the battle of Armageddon, uh, the Lord is going to tell Israel to flee. And they are going to flee. There's going to be some who end up being trapped in Israel. We'll see that later on in Zechariah. The Lord is going to tell them to flee. But then when the Lord returns and defends them, I believe this is when they become this majestic horse, this 
very capable fighting machine. Secondly, Israel will trample their enemies into the mud. Uh, today, this doesn't have quite the same significance, I don't believe, as it did uh, during that time or even during uh, the medieval medieval uh, battles. But during battles, those who would often fall would, because of the close quarters and close ranks, they often get they would be trampled they they would be stepped on they would be ground into the dirt and into the mire they would be rode over and generally ground into the dust and those who come to destroy Israel are themselves going to be destroyed and they're going to be stomped you could say trampled in the dirt and in the mud uh, something that you know is a very ignoble thing third God will be with them to achieve great victories. The nation will achieve what God desires for them to achieve. And God is going to be with them and they're going to accomplish great things. Point four here, Israel will fight under the banner of the Messiah. He's going to lead them into battle. Therefore, as he leads them into battle, he is going to grant them victories. Point five, the riders here will be put to shame. And that's a figure of speech for meaning that they're going to be defeated. These riders, the last line here says that the riders on horses shall be put to shame, which is a figure of speech for defeat. Generally, someone on horseback is thought to have the advantage over someone on foot particularly if you have a troop of cavalry as a matter of fact uh, one of the more feared uh, formations military formations before of course we had mechanized warfare was was dragoons uh, heavy horses uh, and those riding on the horses were generally armed with heavy swords they were not necessarily built for speed, like you very often think light cavalry. They were uh, heavy cavalry, and they were considered to be quite uh, devastating. So here we see that this the tables are going to be turned, and that Israel, fighting on foot, would defeat the more mobile, capable enemy. And I think that this is probably all sort of understood from the standpoint that uh, the uh, the Antichrist is going to have an exceedingly capable army. It's going to be um, great in number as well as in effectiveness. But Israel is going to be made into this magnificent fighting machine. It's going to be a a majestic horse and that's what we're going to see that Israel fighting mostly on foot would defeat the more mobile capable enemy now that's what we read here in verses 3 4 and 5 actually 2, 3, 4 and 5 but now let me see if I can place this and it's going to take me just a, a minute or two to do this but I think you'll be able to see what we have here this is going to be some graphics on the campaign of Armageddon, the eight stages. Now, I've shown this before. We've studied this before. But this, uh, we can spend uh, several uh, Bible classes on this. But what I would like to do is try to uh, walk you through this very quickly so I can show you where in the battle of Armageddon I think our verses here in Zechariah 10, verses 2 through 5 fall. Uh, first of all, the first stage is the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. And that's going to occur during the latter half of the tribulation. The first part of the tribulation. We know that the church is not going to be here for the tribulation. Therefore, the rapture occurs first. We all are going to be taken, whether we are alive or whether we are believers who are asleep, as Paul describes us. 
the rapture occurs and then sometime subsequent to that we know this from Daniel 9 uh, 26 there's going to be a treaty there's going to be a covenant signed between the Antichrist and Israel we don't know how long it's going to be between the rapture and the signing of that treaty but there's going to be a short period and then that starts the tribulation tribulation starts with the signing of that treaty well the antichrist is going to defend Israel for the first three and a half years even though there is a lot going on in the first three and a half years because we start the uh, seven seal judgments there's, Israel is still going to be living in relative calm and peace and security but then uh, and we we can read this in Daniel as a matter of fact I'm just going to leaf right over to Daniel instead of describing this to you I can read it to you in Daniel 9 in Daniel 9 really beginning in verse 27 is where the covenant begins um There is a gap between verses 26 and verse 27. The end of verse 26, uh, we have this uh, period of time um, that is historical beginning in verse 26. But then we have the gap between 26 and 27. And I'd like to spend more time here. Maybe I'll come back and do a little bit more of this next week. But verse 27 says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And because of the way that Daniel uh, 9, 24 through 27 is laid out, we know this he is the prince who is to come, who is the Antichrist. And the them is going to be Israel. He's going to confer, conf, uh, confirm a covenant a treaty with Israel for one week and we know that this one week is a seven year period he shall bring an end to sacrifice but in the middle of the week in other words after three and a half years he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined which is poured out on the desolate. So in other words, what we have here, <coughs> excuse me, is that in the middle of that seven and a half years, the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to turn on Israel. And there is going to be a gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. And they're going to gather <coughs> in the valley of Armageddon, which is up right close to uh, Mount Megiddo. Some of us have been up on Mount Megiddo and we've looked out there and we've seen this huge valley where Napoleon said you could gather all the armies of the world. You could maneuver them. All right, so we have the gathering of the armies of the Antichrist. We know the second stage of this eight stages is the destruction of Babylon because the Antichrist has this desire to be the only one in power the only one in control and so he sends uh, an army over to Babylon and destroys Babylon which really is the seat of a great deal of power both political and religious thirdly the uh, Antichrist is going to attack Jerusalem and he's uh, attacks Jerusalem coming down you can see the arrow here uh, coming down from Mount Megiddo to Jerusalem and it's at that time that Israel is told to flee and Israel is supposed to flee to the hills and we believe that they flee from most of them flee from Jerusalem down to Basra down to Petra and the armies of the Antichrist are going to pursue them all the way down 
to Petra, down to Basra, which is in the uh, southern portion there, across just south of the dead, uh, southeast of the Dead Sea, in today what is known as Jordan. And it's there that Israel is going to call upon the Lord. And this is what we see in uh, Joel 2.2. Joel 20. uh, Joel 2. Well. That verse eludes me. Joel 2. Joel 2. Twenty thirty-two. I knew there was a two in it. I just couldn't quite pick it up. But it says that, uh, and it shall come to pass that who, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is when they will call on the name of the Lord, and the Lord will respond. And our stage six here, that was stage five, Israel's regeneration. Stage six is Israel is the second coming of Christ. And he returns. You can see the point six there, the cloud in the sky. Uh, comes in the sky, but he's going to attack the uh, armies of the Antichrist at uh, as they are surrounding or coming down to Basra. The fighting then is going to go back. You can see the arrow... Uh, going from uh, five back up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The end of the fighting uh, is going to occur in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I believe that that's where our verses apply. Because Israel now is going to be, remember they're fleeing, they're told to flee, but now at that point when the Lord returns, he's going to return... As we're told in Revelation 19, Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is the Lord returning here, uh, point seven. There's going to be a great battle and the armies of the Antichrist are going to be destroyed. And I think that our verse here, uh, the description in verse five, places that, uh, uh, places us at that time. And then our eighth stage is the victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives. That's the last, uh, the last part of that. The Lord's feet are going to come and be placed on the Mount of Olives. Um, and therefore we can say um, the way that he departed with the disciples, he's going to return. Now, it took me a little bit longer tonight to cover all that. Uh, when we come back next week, uh, I'll, I'll take a little bit more time, maybe add a little bit of meat to what we have there. But that's what we have here in, in uh, Zechariah 10, Zechariah 10, uh, 5. And I, that's, I think that's a very important aspect of what we're going to see in the future. And that's why Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, is so important, so critical for us, because it gives us this information. And those are the eight stages. And I believe that Zechariah 10, and I'm not the only one that believes this, uh, it's not original with me, but uh, I don't know that I've actually read anybody placing them at that point. They just place them uh, at the end of the tribulation, but it's, it's got to be at point seven here. Uh, the seventh stage because that's when the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist are going to occur. All right. Well, um, I, for me, this is very interesting as I have a chance to study this and hopefully it's interesting for you as well. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the revelation that we have here in Zechariah. We're thankful that you have provided for us this information. And although it's not laid out necessarily neatly here because Zechariah doesn't see uh, all of what's going to happen, we can put this together with Daniel 9 and we can see it in Revelation 19 and in other passages um, in Isaiah. Uh, and we're thankful that uh, we have the the whole um, 
text of Scripture so we might be able to piece this together. And we're thankful that God, the Holy Spirit, guides us as we do this. We pray that we would uh, evaluate it, uh, study it, and understand it accurately and correctly, Father, so that we might have a better understanding of how you are administering history. And also, Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ is our living Savior. Uh, He not only has gone to the cross and paid for the sins of the world, uh, providing for us a salvation, a salvation that we can access simply by believing, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved. But Father also, he is in control of the world. Uh, you have a definite plan, and it does uh, revolve around Israel. And there's going to be a time when he is returning, and we shall see him in the air. And Father, we not only look forward to that, but we pray, Father, that we would live our lives in light of that fact. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.